Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome back to our coverage of House of the Dragon. We're talking today about Season 1, Episode 7, Driftmark. And like I said, I think we'll probably do just an official episode ranking at the end of the season. But uh, I I think this is a strong candidate for best episode so far this season. What do you think? This is an episode that like got my blood running like no other one really has so far. The show has thrown a couple curveballs uh, at us, but I think this is one that it had me striking out swinging. Like I was like completely taken by surprise by this one. So right now it is definitely in my ranking. I've kind of liked the episodes more and more as the season has gone on. Um, after I think a strong pilot, but I think uh, the last few episodes have generally been my favorite. But I think this one, this one is the one that got me out of my seat, which is only to its compliment. It's a sign of a strong show that each episode is building so well on the previous one, but also just this one and the last one, The Princess and the Queen, have been the most ambitious ones so far. And I think there are, if not flaws, at least, you know, missed opportunities you can point to along the way, or it's easy to game out how things could have gone differently with the time jumps. But they've stuck the landing on two episodes that I think would have been very, very easy to do poorly, which is always kind of my standard for a great episode of television is how easy it is to imagine the worst version of this episode. And then you can just congratulate everyone involved for avoiding that. And this this is one of those cases where uh, I didn't realize until I was watching the behind the scenes stuff that this was the first episode they shot, at least for the most part. And that also was a calculated risk to get everyone together and the, these big, ragged, dramatic moments together on one, one, on one location. And this, this could have worked poorly. Like how in The Lord of the Rings, wasn't it one of the earliest she- scenes they shot was like the end was the Grey Havens with Gandalf <laughs> saying goodbye to these actors he didn't know yet. So, I mean, that's how it goes with filming, but it, it shows a confidence in the actors and the material, I think. Yeah, the fact that Rhaenyra, or rather Emma Darcy and uh, Matt Smith have to play these characters as if they live the relationship we've already seen. And I view this in the last episode as almost the thankless episodes insofar as like we had the first five episodes with the main cast and or with the young cast with Millie Alcock and Emily Carey there to blow us away. This is kind of like the middle tier cast or the cast that's in a cocoon, um, because once we get next week's time jump, we're pretty much moving into the time period of the dance and kind of the final casting. Some of the younger characters here will be aged up. So there's a couple actors, especially the young uh, kids of Allison and Rhaenyra that, you know, only got to do these two episodes, but um, they had some difficult work for them. And I think they pulled it off because I think the children in this episode really, really helped pull this episode together. So this episode is bookmarked by Valerian Ceremony, a funeral at the beginning in the tradition of House Valerian, delivered in High Valerian by Brother Vaymond. <laughs> the ceremony is evocative of the Viking funerals that House Tully performs, which also opened up an episode of Thrones back in Season 3, and will be part of our discussion for Catelyn 4 coming up in our Storm of Swords coverage. This episode continues the cadence of the first season, wherein every odd-numbered episode features a large public event that gathers much of the main cast so that we can see not just their interactions and character dynamics, but the public performance of those dynamics and how they differ from the truth, things we see privately in the even-numbered episodes. In this one, that starts coming to a head as some of those private feelings are starting to publicly erupt, as we'll get to later this episode. To that end, we get a lot of those private feelings starting to bubble up and on display during Vaymon Valerian's eulogy. 
We see Lena's kids, Bela and Reyna, are Reyna are leaning on Lena's mother, Reynis, a relationship that must be stronger now that the link between the two has passed. This very nicely sets up Reynis championing the girl's claim to Triftmark in a later scene. Lena, for his part, is vis- visibly shaken, not taking this well at all. Meanwhile, Otto Hightower is sitting there admiring his hand of the kingpin. Aegon too is clearly just bored. Rainier and Alicent are shooting glances at each other that might as well be daggers. And just to highlight some of the lines in Veymon's eulogy, because some of it stuck out to me, he refers to the seat of the sea, which seems to be the pier that upon which they're having the ceremony and pushing the coffin into the waters. Um, I just like the little peppering in of world building that makes this world and this specific location feel better realized, much like naming the Hall of Nine in the previous Driftmark episode. We get mention of the Dominion of the Merlin King, which is just a deity often invoked by our seafaring characters in Aswath. Um, Davos, perhaps most of all, but I think uh, many characters have referred to the Merlin King. Uh, we see Vaemon staring at Damon as he says, she leaves two trueborn daughters behind. And I'm not sure if that stare at Damon is like, I doubt this guy is going to sta- stand up and be like true dad material, or maybe a sidewards glance at Rhaenyra that Lenor's sons are not his, which gets to the next lines. Salt runs coarse through Valerian blood. Ours runs thick. Ours runs true. Ours must never thin, which again cuts to Rhaenyra, and she returns a look like, I see what you're doing there, Vaymond. I understand what's underpinning these words. Um, Damon kind of just chuckles at all this, which, of course, Damon does. He's, that's the only reaction he's capable of in a moment like this. And then the final lines are, from the sea we came to the sea we shall return, which in itself is a beautiful sentiment, but also jives well with how this episode ends, with Lenor returning to the sea now that he's quote-unquote dead. And this scene ends with a visual flourish that's a great transition to Lena's coffin sinking to the sea, but that the blue waters slowly fade into the blue skies above with the uh, dragons flying over Driftmark. Like you said, you have the bookmarks of Valyrian ceremonies with the funeral here, and then the wedding of Damon and Rhaenyra. But yeah, it's also bookmarked with the final scene, the final shot of the episode, revealing that Laenor has survived. So you have one Valyrian sibling die, and the other one seems to have died, but is in fact reborn. In both cases, as you say, the sea is calling to them. We hear the waves in this episode before we even see anything. And you get a great sense in this episode of the ocean as like a, a maternal figure. The origin of us all to which we return when we die. But that sense of community and commonality, emphasized by Lena's girls clinging to their grandmother, is undercut by, well, pretty much everyone else. And the most obvious example is Vaymond, who uses the eulogy as an opportunity to take pot shots at Rhaenyra and her kids. We are all gathered here today to pay tribute to my niece, who was honorable and true. Unlike that fake-ass family right over there. Yeah, I'm talking about you. And it's so obvious that Damon can't help but laugh. He understands that kind of little brother chip on the shoulder energy all too well. Those tensions haven't died with Harwin Strong. They're going to break through and take over later in the episode. And while Vaymond is certainly being cruel here, as well as drawing attention away from his dead niece, you do get where he's coming from. His grief is only made worse by the possibility that someone who is not remotely a Valerian who did not grow up here will be taking over Driftmark when Corliss returns to the sea. That grievance prevents everyone from coming together as they mourn. And same applies to the rest of them, although told only in glances. Otto, as usual, treats human feelings like a foreign language. Caring only for the handpin, he is taken back. 
His grandson Egon just wants to get back to what he's good at, getting drunk and hitting on every unlucky woman in his path. He can't take any of this seriously. For all that he's the chosen heir of the Greens, he cannot play the role properly. He doesn't even care about his own sister Helena. Aemond points out that she's to be Egon's queen, and he's like, yeah, whatever, you want her? And it's interesting that Lenor basically has the opposite problem, right? He can't play his role because he's overwhelmed by his feelings. He's feeling the loss of Lena as a person, not just a symbol. He's the one who's not acting like these other people are pawns or playthings. He feels legit human hurt in a way that the way that the Targaryen kids are talking to each other, you just don't get a sense of. So uh, preceding the actual funeral procession, uh, we have like a funeral happy hour, cocktail hour. I don't know exactly what to call this. It looks like a nice little uh, party on the patio. But Rhaenyra comes out with the camera tailing her at first. Very evocative of the season seven trailers for Thrones or even Tyrion and Ned being let out for their executions or judgments. Camera cuts to her uh, to her front side and Rhaenyra walks into focus, which I think sums up what this episode is for her. Her political ambition and personal desires becoming more clear, coming to the fore. The previous six episodes felt like Rhaenyra rebelling against the role foisted upon her. She's done some savvy politicking in previous episodes, but this really feels like Rhaenyra emerging as a player in the Game of Thrones. Rhaenyra looks out, and her eyes flick from Daemon to Alicent to Viserys to her kids, and you can see everything that she's juggling. Her desire for Daemon, the ever-crumbling relationship with Alicent, her earnest love for her father, and her duty to her children, who she has, to put into a, who she has put into a more dangerous game than they are ready to play. Rhaenyra tries to get Jace to go comfort Bela and Reyna, but Jace is legitimately more concerned about mourning his father, Sir Harwin, who I'm sure he's still juggling the concept of bastardy in his own blood as well. And we do get a very sweet moment when Jace does go to comfort his aunts. Uh, I'm not quite clear on this relationship here. And the girls take Jace's arm just for coming over, even though Jace struggled to find any real words of mourning to say or consolation to say to them. And whether it's the girls just appreciating Jace's gesture or them perhaps understanding that he too just lost a parent, one that he's not even allowed to mourn. It reminds me of Loras after Renly died. Different situation, obviously. But there's that same wretched feeling where you can't even mourn for those you've lost because it would be politically inconvenient to admit your true relationship to them. Jace has to go on pretending that the Valerians are his blood kin, while turning his back on the death of the man who fathered him. It's hard enough that Jace has these conflicted feelings about Harwin Strong, given that he just consciously realized at least that Harwin was his father, but he can't even work out those feelings with anyone. He has to pretend they don't exist. So even though Jace is Rhaenyra's heir, this princeling with a dragon and he never has to worry about where his next meal or set of fancy clothes is going to come from, even he doesn't feel free to live his life and express his individual feelings. The need to keep up appearances is prioritized above his personal needs. It really captures the position Rhaenyra has put her kids in. She loved Harwin. He loved her and their children. And she's right to encourage her kids to help Reyna and Bela in their hour of need. But in doing so, she has forced Jace into this mummer's farce, ensuring another generation feels torn apart, even worse than she did. But yeah, you do have that, that sweet moment when Bela takes Jace's hand. Grief is a wordless thing a lot of the times. Language isn't up to the task of capturing how it feels. So those silent gestures speak volumes because it cuts right past the bloodlines coursing through the opening credits 
to make a human connection. We've all lost someone, even if we can't all admit to it. Corliss takes this opportunity to talk to Lucerus about inheriting Driftmark, which allows Luke to channel his inner Jon Snow, I don't want it. Um, but him taking the lordship of Driftmark only occurs if everyone else is dead, and Lucerus as a young child is just not accepting of this news. I think I like your John voice even more than Chloe's. No one, no one tell her about it. And yeah, it, I think the John comparison is dead on. It's just like John struggling with whether to accept the offer of Winterfell from Stannis. He has that thought he thinks to himself, like, I, I used to want this until I realized it would mean they all would have to die. Like, this is only coming to me because everyone I love is gone. And Luke is only just beginning to understand that that's how it works. The Game of Thrones is built on bones. It's a grisly game of musical chairs wherein you can only win by being all alone. And the poor kid just wants to hold on to those he loves. It's exactly how his half-brother, Aegon III, is going to feel at the end of the dance. Technically, he wins. But at what cost? What world will he be living in? Amon even comes up to Jace with the shy smile, whether just to be like, hi, or <laughs> give his condolences as well. Jace looks at him, and then Amon looks down and walks away. What's literally in between these two kids preventing them from connecting? Fire. Mm. It reminds me a lot of Tyrion and Cersei in A Man Without Honor from Season 2, where Cersei wonders to her brother, not in an unkindly manner, if she was being punished for her incest and for Joffrey. Tyrion tries to walk over to comfort her, and Cersei could use some consoling in the moment, but when they lock eyes and remember they're supposed to hate each other, the connection is not allowed to occur. It's, it's heartbreaking because in those moments you realize, oh, the hatred is in part just kind of a narrative we're keeping up. And maybe we have a reason to feel that way, but we don't automatically feel that way. We don't have to. We've kind of just trained ourselves to. And yeah, great catch on the fire between those kids in that moment. We have this contrast throughout the episode that uh, Damon and Rhaenyra will later make explicit, that if, but this contrast between fire and water. Water as this, this liminal space, this connective tissue binding everything together. And then you have fire as, as a prison, as Rhaenyra defines it, this aggressive energy that turns inward and just eats you up. And Aemond is, is trying his best here. I agree, whatever he's going to say when he's coming over here was going to be positive. He wasn't trying to start a fight. But even if he wasn't, you know, terminally awkward, there's already too much bad blood here, inherited from their parents. Aemon has been raised to hate the strong boys. And for his part, Jace is looking for something to do with all his repressed emotions, the feelings he's not allowed to express. What better target than his true-born uncles who get to openly acknowledge who their parents are? Yeah, that's such a great observation. It's honestly like a bit of a role reversal from the way that Allison precedes Rhaenyra as having everything that she might possibly want. You can see the kids of Rhaenyra possibly looking at the true-born uh, sons of Allison and Viserys as having the blonde hair and the trappings of power um, and don't have these allegations over their um, lineage. Um, you can see kind of a role reversal of that desire or envy. Uh, we'll move next into what I'll call Helena's prophecy corner as she gives us a little rhyme about hands turning looms, spools of green, spools of black, dragons of flesh weaving dragons of thread. Um, this just like set off a million different little things in my mind. It's evocative of the witch from the from Throne of Blood, Kurosawa's adaptation of Macbeth, which, you know, he the. The loom and the witch, uh, using it as a stand-in for the three witches, which in its turn is evocative of the Norns from Norse mythology who control the threads of fate. And then the actual lines of dragons of thread versus dragons of flesh makes me think of the mummer's dragon and uh, cloth dragons on poles and things like that. 
who is and isn't really a dragon, especially with dragon seeds and bastards coming later in the story, you can see how it's very tied into this narrative's themes. I love those comparisons, especially Throne of Blood. I feel like Thrones, like a lot of uh, sci-fi and fantasy at its best, I think calls back to Kurosawa. Star Wars being, I think, the most obvious, like explicit example of that. But anytime you see a fantasy or sci-fi show or movie with like everything is wreathed in fog and then there's a sudden shock of violence like that's that's kurosawa throne of blood especially absolutely gorgeous movie definitely recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it but yeah so many mythological figures are associated with the loom with weaving and reminded me of arachne from greek mythology the weaver so skilled she could match the gods only to be punished for her hubris by being transformed into a spider the Targaryens also put themselves on the level of gods, only to be continually brought back down to Earth as the humans they are. Even though Helena has divine sight, it doesn't allow her to escape destiny, especially since no one's listening to her. It's like with Patchface, when Patchface, like, defines exactly what's going to happen to everyone, but, you know, he's Patchface, who's going to listen to him? Helena is a puppet who can see the strings, that's all. It's not going to save her, nor her own children. Aegon, for his part, is a lecher through and through, getting wasted and yelling after the serving wenches for their long legs. Kristen Cole, the world's dumbest man, notices Laris staring at Alicent. It seems Alicent may be keeping her relationship with Laris on the down low, whether to remove herself from accusations about the fire at Harrenhal, or just she hasn't really coalesced Team Green into an actual functional unit yet. Lenor, as previously mentioned, is just falling apart. He's out in the waters, almost like he's going to walk out in the sea after Lena. Corliss has to order, order Sir Carl, his patron, to go get him. Uh, Viserys also gets to finally chat with his brother Damon, offering him a place back at court after giving him his condolences and generally trying to make peace. I love that Rhaenyra is watching the Damon-Viserys chat, much like Viserys watched Damon and Rhaenyra chat back in the wedding feast. Like, what are they saying? Are they talking about me? Are they talking about something they shouldn't be? Viserys uh, afterwards decides it's bedtime at like 5 p.m., says goodnight to (laughs) Emma, and then Sir Harold Westerling very cannily asks after Queen Alicent, making sure to, you know, do a nada correction for the king, not calling him out, but helping him get his bearings a little bit. Aegon, meanwhile, got pissed drunk, like we said, and Otto is the one who finds him. Otto looks around to make sure no one is watching him, and then he kicks the boy before sending him to bed. It's very much the king is tired energy from Tywin, just sending sending him to bed without dinner. Aemon, meanwhile, notices Vagar up in the clouds, or at least a, dry, a giant black shadow moving behind the clouds, and he chooses that as an opportunity to go down to the beach. Yeah, a lot of nice little transitional moments, kind of little character bits before we kind of shift into the next major plot thread of the episode. Yeah, there's that devastating bit when Viserys calls Alicent Emma, and you you, you just, that's because they haven't, they've mostly shown uh, Viserys' aging in physical terms, that he's, he's, he's losing body parts and having trouble getting around. Generally speaking, his mind has been pretty sharp. Like, his decision-making was always terrible, even when he was in his prime. And he's, like, he's he, he's kept that dry sense of humor. He's been pretty sharp through scenes. This is this is a sign that he's slipping and that it's all starting to blur together for him. Uh, everything he's been through, everything he's decided to do, probably reveals that the guilt about what he did to his wife is still right there under the surface waiting to come out. And I love your point about what Harold Westerling does. Like, that's a very Kingsguard thing to do. Where you you help upkeep the image of the king, and you're not criticizing him, but you just help him remember. Like I, I imagine, 
in the days when Eris was first starting to go. That's probably what a lot of the Kingsguard were doing, was just helping him along. It's like, it's okay, we'll just get him through the day. And then gradually it gets worse. But by the time it gets worse, you're already kind of used to doing this for him. So that's, I'm sure, part of what, what happened there. And uh, I love... Love the bit with uh, with Otto and Egon, which I'm so glad what they're doing with Egon is they're they're making him like obviously obnoxious, horny, but just terminally unambitious. Like Egon just can't think what to do with himself other than just get drunk and sit in a corner because whatever. Like you know, Amond at least has a goal. <laughs> he has a thing he wants to do. Egon, you just honestly get the sense that if you left him to his own devices, this would be it. And that's kind of funny to watch more ambitious characters like Otto run up against that because there's not really anything you can do with that. And so you just seem kick Agon out of frustration. Like you're supposed to want things so then I can manipulate you. But it's it's kind of impossible to manipulate someone who doesn't want anything. Yeah, I think I described it earlier to someone as Aegon right now is a shit head, but not a shit heel. I mean, he's just exactly. kind of a shitty little kid, but he's not necessarily a harmful kid. I mean, we don't exactly know what he's doing with the handmaidens yet, but um, mostly he's mostly just at this point, it seems like. Yeah, for the I, he just seems like a kid who's like, yeah, I can kind of do whatever I want. I can get drunk whenever I want. Um, maybe perhaps not different uh, to the situation that like kind of Tyrion grew up in, where he has access to wealth and uh, the ability to enjoy himself, and he has these appetites, but he and he doesn't really view himself as having a station right now because he still doesn't view himself as heir to the throne really. Um, so he's just like some other guy who might be like now several rungs down the ladder in terms of this. Uh, succession chain so next we go to the hearth at driftmark which is shot very similarly to that scene back in the night of the seven kingdoms of season eight of thrones Rhaenys dresses corliss down for using her previous claim as the queen who never was to forward his own legacy when she has already kind of given up on that dream it's something we talked about i think a couple episodes back she just cares for the safety of her children one's dead and the other seems to want to be dead as it goes Corliss speaks of legacy, again, major Tywin vibes, but Rhaenys would prefer that Driftmark pass to Bela and Reyna. She may be eschewing legacy, legacy in the way Corliss means, but I also think Rhaenys is also interested in uh, persevering, or preserving legacy, insofar that Driftmark passes down to her own blood, not bastards of other Targaryens and the Strong family. Her meme carries on if Drif Driftmark follows Corliss and Rhaenys' actual bloodline. Which sets up Corliss's line, history doesn't remember blood, it remembers name. Which I think is true, but often that doesn't come without the spilling of blood to make it so. I gotta admit, I was kind of leery of this scene at first, because as it started, it seemed like it was basically repeating the scene we had with these two characters a couple episodes back. Like where Corliss is still smarting from Rhaenys' claim being denied, and she tells him to get over it like she has. I was thinking, we've we had this scene already, didn't we? Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, obviously IRL couples have the same fight over and over again. But dramatically it had me worried that these two characters were gonna stall out. So I was glad when that wasn't the case, and they quickly moved on to a new subject, the succession at Driftmark. And this is what Vaymond was driving at during the funeral with his his trademark subtlety and tact. And I, I think both Rhaenys and Corliss have a point here. She is, of course, 100% right that Rhaenyra's children were not fathered by Laenor. Corliss seems to have been lying to himself about this just like Viserys has. If Corliss is all about legacy, well, what about his daughter's legacy? Will Lena and her girls vanish into history while Rhaenyra's sons take hold of a castle that 
they have no right to, they have no connection to, they weren't even raised here and they're going to take charge. But Corliss is right that this would be devastating for those boys. They're already under a shadow of suspicion. If Corliss passes over Luke in favor of Lena's daughters, he would just be adding more fuel to that fire. The Greens would be able to point to that and say, see, why would Corliss do that unless he knew the boys were not of his blood? There are no easy answers here. Things have gotten out of hand, even for smart, powerful, and generally well-intentioned operators like Corliss and Rhaenys. You feel both of their pain. Again, so much of it comes down to mortality. Corliss knows that no matter what they do, they will eventually join Lena in death. Surely what matters is what we leave behind us. But even that can turn to ashes in your mouth. Watching this scene, I felt like it was doing a lot of work to set up where Corliss is going to end the story. One of the few survivors, regent to the new king, he might be in charge of Westeros when we leave the story, but he's all alone, just like the king, Aegon Three. No wife, no children. What was it all for? The show sets up the middle of the episode like a standard soap opera. Damon and Rhaenyra seek privacy on the beach, which eventually leads to fucking. Aemond is also on the beach, and a more standard television show would perhaps have the kid find the fucking Targaryens and using that as fuel for the growing divide between greens and blacks. But this isn't a standard television show. Rhaenyra and Damon reflect back on their marriages, which is apparently foreplay in this case. <laughs> Rhaenyra takes the lead this time around, grabbing Damon kindly by the neck and collarbone, and we get a fairly tender sex scene, all things considered, under the driftwood on the beach and on the sand, which Anakin Skywalker would absolutely hate this. <laughs> and who can blame him? Beach sex, in my experience, only sounds sexy. In reality, it's more of a stinky, sweaty mess. But hey, maybe that's what these two are into. Who am I to judge? And the, the tenderness you mentioned, that definitely stands out relative to their unconsummated sex scene back in episode four, which was pretty much everything except tender. In that episode, Rhaenyra brought her feelings to Kristen Cole instead. Now that relationship has taken a turn for the worse, to put it mildly, and this is the tender relationship now. Of course, it's all rooted in grief and emotional damage. Damon is working through his unresolved feelings for Lena, including guilt. And Rhaenyra has clearly been carrying a torch for Damon all along, which I think inherently warps how you see the other person because she spent more time with the dream of Damon than she has spent with Damon. I don't think there is a platonic ideal of tenderness, though, that just emerges from the ether and you get to experience it. Oftentimes, real tenderness and emotional connection comes from pain. And that doesn't justify the pain itself. It's I think it's just a, it's an emotional byproduct of, of how you find yourself later in life. Yeah, it's one of the ways in which we can lay each other bare and really open up to someone else is to share pain with each other. Um, it's like at the core of the human condition. So you can see why it works as a way for two people to come together as one in the given moment. Eamon, meanwhile, stalks Vagar as the moon peeks out from behind the clouds. He tracks her to her resting place, a bulking behemoth that makes it difficult to tell where dragon end and sky and earth begin. It's a great job establishing a sense of scale to the dragon, uh, no pun intended, I guess, as the diminutive child walks up to the ropey la ladder that's lashed to her back. Vagar instantly wakes when he reaches out for the ropes. Vagar takes a whiff, takes stock of Aemond, then puts her head down. When Aemond goes for the ropes again, Vagar looks to light him up this time, but he is able to command her to hold her horses and let him climb up. I love the shot of Aemond climbing vertically on the screen right while Vagar watches in the background. It reminds me of a shot like out of 1933's King Kong with them 
I feel like they're uh, climbing the cliff at some point and you can see either the T-Rex fighting or something like that. It's a very specific shot that kind of got frozen into my mind. And while this is all uh, happening, you get a little bit of the Astapor version of Daenerys' leitmotif from the old throne show, just kind of like the um, thing that beats up like when the Unsullied take Astapor. So it's kind of like a building a bit of suspense here. And while all this is going on, uh, we do see that Lena's kid spy someone taking Vagar. But I love how the test for Aemond isn't just mounting Vagar, but actually learning to hold on to him and fly with him. Uh, there's a bunch of deep dives in a sense when they're finally airborne, and the kid is barely hanging on. And then when he finally takes the saddle properly and seems to gain control, that season five Daenerys theme from the Dance of Dragons episode really comes in when she first flies on Drogon. And as we'll see more plainly later, but you can see all sorts of little flourishes on Vagar. We've already talked about the ropey ladders, but you also can see holes in Vagar's wings, not unlike, say, the Nazgul from the Lord of the Rings films. For the oldest dragon that has seen wartime, this makes a ton of sense. Again, it makes the world feel lived in. What an incredible scene this is. It's equal parts frightening and thrilling. It really emphasizes Amon's courage by showing how many opportunities, how many chances he had to turn back, and by, sh- and by showing off the sheer size of Vagar, as you say, less like a horse than a mountain. As with Lena's death scene in the previous episode, you really get a strong sense of Vagar's feelings, just from her movements, her noises, the effects work on her eyes. At first, you can tell she's just mildly curious why this random insect is disturbing her nap, and then she gets actively annoyed and prepares to roast him, but when Aemond talks her down, her interest grows. Maybe it's time for a new best friend. She's feeling lonely without Lena. And then, yeah, she tests him instead of just immediately taking him for a fun magic carpet ride. Aemond very easily could have been thrown to his death. And this cements the idea in our heads, I think it's supposed to, that this is something he has earned, not stolen. Like, if Vagar didn't want him there, he wouldn't be. Just ask Quentin Martell. Yeah, you finally got your dragon tamer scene. I did. I got my I got my baby Euron and my dragon tamer scene in one episode. I'm a very happy man. So the aftermath of Aemon uh, taming Vagar, we see uh, Rhaenyra and Daemon's kids are there in full force to confront Aemon, and this is a nice little show addition to get in Daemon and Lena's kids in on the in on the mix. Vagar had belonged to Lena and was going to pass to Rhaena supposedly, who remained dragonless. But we do see a new viciousness arise in Aemon following his taming of Vagar, almost like once you ride a nuclear bomb between your legs, you have an inflated self of sense and power. And then we get a scene of kids literally hitting each other, and it's like they're hitting each other pretty hard. Um, As my friend Liz pointed out, and they are a non-book reader, you have this death-defying sequence with Vagar, this tremendous fantastical beast that you worry is going to kill this little kid. But in the end, the actual danger and harm comes from other kids. And kids we know to be generally good kids and not the worst. Uh, but it's at the point that Amon teases Jace about his bastardy, then the blade comes out. And that sets up uh, Prince Amon losing his eye, fulfilling uh, Helena's prophecy from the previous episode that to take a dragon it would cost him an eye. And finally, Harold Westerling and the rest of the Kingsguard arrive to separate the kids. Just after the nick of time. <laughs> Good thing the Kingsguard was here. And yeah, I, I love what a come down this is after the the superman-esque glory of watching Aemond fly. And this is what I was talking about earlier. 
The dragons allow the Targaryens to act like gods, but in the end, they're people, like any other people. Aemond winds up not burnt to a crisp by a magical monster, but cut by steel, wielded by his nephew. In Game of Thrones, by the same token, even after defeating the White Walkers, the survivors are left to fight amongst themselves. And this fight among the kids, I think, is a microcosm of the larger fight about to spill out among the adults. And it gives the later feud context, like those grown-ass people are no wiser nor more mature than the kids. As with the adults, you understand where all these kids are coming from. Bela and Reyna just lost their mother. Watching someone else ride her dragon? It's like losing her all over again. It especially hurts for Reyna because, like Aemond, she doesn't have a dragon of her own. And that could be a way for the two of them to bond, but there's only one dragon. Just like there's only one Iron Throne. You can't both win. And you also get why the strong boys are involved. Rhaenyra told Jace to look after his cousins in this difficult time, and they came to him for help. What can a chivalrous young man do except help them? It's what Harwin would have done. But you also get where Aemond is coming from. Not only did the strong boys bully him for not having a dragon yet, but yeah, he's just coming off the high of riding around on the biggest dragon in the world. No wonder he's so arrogant now. Sadly, as is often the case, the lesson Aemond learned from the bullying is not that bullying is wrong. It's that it's better to be the bully than the victim. Now he's in the position of power, so he taunts Reyna. You should get the pig now. It's your turn to have the pink dread and be the target of all the mocking laughter. You just pass on the pain like it was never yours. And then, yeah, of course, he pokes at Jace and Luke. You're strong boys. You're bastards. Because that's the edge he has over them. You might be ahead of me in the line for the Iron Throne, but I'm a true-born Targaryen, and you aren't, so there. This is in spite of the fact that the dragons accept Rhaenyra's boys just fine. Like we were saying last week, they accepted Rhaenyra's boys before Aemond. So Aemond isn't laying down the iron law of the universe. He's making up for his own insecurities, which is also what's going on with the adults. You feel the fury coming off Jace and Luke when he says that. But then you flinch when you see Aemon's blood leaking between his fingers. It's an empathy machine, as you said in a recent episode. But if you use it well, that cuts both ways. And when Harold Westerling barged in, he calls out who had the watch. And then Viserys will repeat that when they cut to the scene in the Hall of Nine. And I want to be very clear here. Kristen Cole had the watch. Back in the scene where uh, Viserys called Alicent Emma um, and Harold Westerling went to escort the king to bed, he very explicitly said, Kristen Cole, you have the night's watch. So when we you know, chalk up the sins of Kristen Cole, this one is very much also on him. And in the presence of the king, Westerling is completely contrite, while Cole, on the other hand, is like, well, the Kingsguard never had to protect princes from princes before, which, do you know your Targaryen history, sir? <laughs> and I got to also point out that they're doing some amazing makeup work on Aemon's eye. It just looks really gnarly and fantastic watching that uh, scar kind of crawl over the left side of his face. Corliss and Rhaenys arrive late, almost like they weren't even invited to the thing in their own house involving their own grandchildren. It reminds me of how Ned was furious that Arya wasn't brought to him on the king's throne following Nymeria attacking Joffrey. Even Viserys here is holding court at Driftmark, feels like Robert having a makeshift council at Derry to educate the direwolf business. Even Viserys saying, I will have the truth of what happened, is very close to that dialogue. Great comparison. It's that same tension that same energy in the room. And it also reminded me 
of Tyrion walking in when Joffrey is having the Kingsguard beat Sansa. A uh, different kind of scene, but he uses the exact same line. What is the meaning of this? That I think it's Corliss says when he's when he storms into the room here in this episode, and it's that it's the very specific tension of children being in the room. I feel like like the adults are like we're so angry, but we have to filter that somehow because there were kids here, and we're not supposed to technically act like this in front of them. Even though, where do you think the kids learned all of this shit from? From you people. So I think that's that's the that's the vibe you get in the room, and I think we've all experienced that where adults are kind of afraid of their own anger because there were children present. I think that's that's here in this room. Yeah, it's the public performance of anger, or at least the parenting performance of anger. You mm-hmm. can't go too far, especially in front of other people and their kids as well. Said by a person who has no kids and has no experience <laughs> raising them, to be clear. But we were, we were all kids ourselves, at least. Not me. I never was one. I was I was yeah. born an old man. But <laughs> you, the re- you were fully formed. <laughs> the rest of you were children, I imagine. You're the true... Um, how, what do they call Jojen's? Sir, not Sir Grandfather, but they call him oh, right. something Grandfather. Uh, little Grandfather, or what is Little Grandfather? Or something like yeah, that. You came out like an old man. That's yes. true. That's what the villain in Matilda says, Miss Trunchbull. Filthy things, children. Glad I never was one. I've always <laughs> identified with that. Oh, Rhaenyra and Damon also arrive late because of, you know, pre discussed sexy time. And her kids run to uh, their mother and try to explain all that happened. Damon just kind of leans off over to the side, the one time where he actually isn't really at fault for what happened, which is kind of new to him. Viserys, played by Patty Constantine, who does a wonderful job in this scene, has to shut everyone up. And again, this is just a great showcase for the actor. It really turns up a notch when the accusation of bastardy is brought up. Aemon has a small smile when this accusation is thrown around and Rhaenyra says Aemon must be sharply questioned, which is a euphemism for torture in this universe, which uh, we are discussing torturing a child here. So whereas Sir Laenor also allows Allison to drop a probably out with his young squires comment, which makes Kristen Cole laugh and Westerling gives Cole a look all through the scene. You can see the wheels turning in Westerling's head coming to realize that Kristen Cole is Allison's creature through and through. Amond, when pressed on where he heard the rumors, stares at his mother for a good long while before finally putting the blame on Aegon. Aegon, who is clearly hungover at this point, when asked, is basically like, uh, duh? <laughs> we just all kind of know this. Aegon, unlike the older people in this room, is willing to say the thing. Or perhaps he has not yet learned his, learned his lordly manners, so he is untrained in what to say when this is questioned in front of everyone. Again, I love that that thick tension in the air where neither kid can say where they learned it from, which is pretty clearly their mom. Just as everyone knows that Rhaenyra's kids were fathered by Harwin, everyone knows that Alicent has been telling her kids that. Only Viserys refuses to see. And that's the irony. It's the great irony of the most powerful person in the room, the center of gravity for an entire continent, being the butt of the joke, being the most ignorant person in the room because he has decided it will be so. And Amond, like any good little brother, immediately blames it on Big Bro. Aegon diffuses it to avoid getting in trouble with Mom, saying, Oh, everyone, I just heard that just, you know, from the walls, it's in the ambience, I heard it from everyone. But that only makes Viserys angrier, because he has no one to punish. How do you punish an omnipresent rumor? He's at war with gossip itself. Yeah, and Viserys is just demanding apologies and that everyone make peace, but does nothing to actually heal the rift that has occurred. Again, like Robert, 
Uh, he's just asking everyone to be nice to each other, just to make me happy so I don't have to worry about things. Yeah, that's a great comparison. What Cersei says about Robert, he went where smiles were, which becomes kind of this self-fulfilling loop where you never address what might be causing someone not to smile. And Viserys is running, to that, running into that exact same problem. It's a, it's a representative failure of leadership on his part, that he wants the surface appearance of peace without any of the lasting substance. It's such a childish perspective on what his job is in, in a way that also reminds me of Robert. There's that line I, I always find kind of heartbreaking, when, what Robert says to Arya in that, uh, that confrontation at Derry in the main series, when he says, it is a great crime to lie to a king. Because on one hand, yeah, that is kind of how you explain what the king is to a kid. But you also get the sense that's really how Robert thinks about it. Like, I'm the guy, it's a great crime to lie to. And that's my storybook job as the king. And that is also how Viserys thinks. It's it, and Viserys is just treating everyone as though the issue is just their temper. And if they all just calm down, it'll be fine. And there's just no acknowledgement that these people have just foundationally different interests. And this is just going to keep being a problem. How is Viserys going to prevent this from happening again and again and again after he's dead? And you do feel for him because he, he genuinely loves all of these people. It's the same reason he welcomes Damon back in this episode, even after all of their problems. But when you're in power, you can't afford to just be a family man. This cuts deeper than a Thanksgiving feud. There are lives at stake. Yeah, I love that comparison between Robert and Viserys. Um, I'm thinking of when Tyrion uh, slaps Joffrey and Joffrey's like, I expected his hand to fall off because he slapped the king. It's not really any more of an evolved thought on kingship or power than that. Um, I know that's a little bit of feeding Tyrion's lines into Joffrey's head, but um, I'm going to allow it for my own analogy. Anyway, Alicent invokes the Code of Hammurabi, which seems to exist in this universe, an eye for an eye. She is getting absolutely nothing out of this, while Rhaenyra is openly able to flaunt her treasons, what she calls it herself, and make all the court of King's Landing pres uh, that are present have to swallow her true-born son's routine, even though everyone knows it's a sham. All through the series so far, we get to say, see Rhaenyra buck against gender norms and her princessly role, and is either not punished for it or even lauded and loved for it. Meanwhile, Alicent has done everything asked of her, sacrificed everything. She was taught to behave in the society in a way that's good for her house and her kingdoms. And at the very least, she thought her and Rhaenyra might have to suffer the same prisons of gender together, a way they can be bound and hold something in common like they were when they were kids, bonds of affection that they felt for each other. Allison tries to get Cole to take Lucerus's eye, whichever one he wants, a privilege not afforded to my son, which, no spoilers here, but I was thinking about blood and cheese. Cole stands down, saying he only serves as a protector for the queen, which is kind of his way of weaseling out of it. But again, Westerling gives him the fucking eye, noting that there is more to this relationship than he may have first thought. Allison takes matters into her own hands, grabbing the cat's paw dagger and going for Rhaenyra's kids. Rhaenyra stops her, and we get the scene we've seen so many times in season preview trailers. Cole tries to get involved, which is what gets Damon off the bench and tells the fuckboy to just stay the hell out of it for now. There are some really great close-up shots here of the dagger closing in on Rhaenyra's eye, backdropped against the fireplace burning behind them. Whether that's a visual reminder to us of the importance of the blade, or just a vis visual flourish to emphasize fire and blood, it works either way. Yeah, what a great moment. It, it's so hypnotic the way it's shot and edited, like you're suddenly 
locking into Rhaenyra's POV. Like, she's already got, you know, blood pumping in her ears. She's charged up. She's prepared to defend herself and her kids. And then she sees that weapon, that of that weapon of all weapons, and suddenly it's like that's all she can think about. And she, you got to imagine she's thinking, what are the odds of that, that the dagger that drives my destiny forward is the very one Alicent picked up? There must be some power at work making all this possible. This is bigger than me. I'm on a loom of some kind, as Helena would say. This is, this is fate. This is a story I'm trapped inside. The Song of Ice and Fire. And it's like, how, how could she even begin to explain that to Alicent, for whom this is nothing but a dagger? And it's a great way of illustrating the gap in their perspectives. For Alicent, of course, this is the moment the veil drops. The moment she loses all patience and openly lashes out. She was already feeling stressed, to put it mildly, after Laris burned his family alive in Harrenhal on her behalf. She's already struggling to maintain her kid's position, and she's already having to smile and make nice for Viserys' sake. And now her boy, her sad, weird boy that was already getting bullied, loses an eye. And I think the permanence of that is the real horror for her. Eyes don't grow back. Aemond will never recover. She's probably imagining that she's going to be thinking about this every time she looks at him. What an insult that is. What an affront. There must be some response. And Viserys' response is to wag his royal finger and then take a royal nap. And you can't argue with what Alicent says next. That is insufficient. You cannot just hope this goes away. To do so in this case, I mean, it's always bad when Viserys does that. But to do so in this case is a cruel insult to Aemond specifically. The problem, though, lies with Alicent's own model of justice, ordering Kristen Cole to cut one of Luke's eyes out right there in front of everyone. And, you know, she thinks of this as an eye for an eye, but this is, to put it mildly, different than what happened to Aemond, to have an adult do it in cold blood. I think part of what's going on, as many people have pointed out, is that Alicent seems to have a subconscious attraction to Rhaenyra, and she feels alone and rejected and like she has lost that part of herself. And that adds a personal element to the grievance she makes explicit, which is that she has always followed the rules and done what was expected of her, while Rhaenyra does whatever she wants and expects everyone else, including Alicent, to just play along. That would be enough to create conflict with Aemon's injury as the spark. In Alicent's eyes, Viserys has just confirmed his bias. I can't rely on you anymore. I gotta take matters into my own hands, literally. But... I think she's terrified by the thought that she didn't have to make all these sacrifices, that there's a, a different world out there, a different life she could have lived. And so she externalizes that fear and that loss as hatred. She has to crush the one she loves in order to avoid the pain of not being able to act on it. In the process, she draws Rhaenyra's blood dripping down her hand, the sight of which seems to wake Alicent up to the fact that she has done this in public, which is the cardinal sin of politics. As Rhaenyra says, this is the price you're going to pay for the catharsis of dropping the mask, because now everyone sees you as you are. Yeah, even Otto has to tell Allison to chill out here. Allison pushes away, slicing up Rhaenyra's forearm like you said, and the dagger is dropped to the floor. Cole picks up the cat's paw dagger, which I don't want to miss. He was also there in either episode three or four when Viserys had the dagger in the flame to lecture Rhaenyra. So I am curious how much he may know about the dagger. I assume little because, again, Cole is the dumbest man on this planet. But you never know. 
This is also where we get a very famous book line where Amon views it as a fair exchange that he lost an eye but gained a dragon in the process, and he's not wrong, as Otto will mention a little bit later. I love that as the just the perfect capper for this scene and how it just it undercuts everything with this note of both humor and horror. Amon has gone through almost a religious experience, and shamanic characters like Bran often suffer some kind of traumatic injury acting as a gateway to a more spiritual realm. You will never walk again, but you will fly. Same deal here. Only Amund is happy to make the trade, which Bran wasn't. And that reminds me more of Euron, who was kind of Bran's photonegative in that way. And it's funny that Amund, the boy they're all fighting over, isn't concerned at all about losing his eye. He's just pissed off that it overshadowed the thing he really wants to talk about, which is how he did the most badass thing ever and now has a flying T-Rex bigger than all the other flying T-Rexes. But it's also haunting that this is his big takeaway, because while he might feel like he has transcended politics in this moment, he's going to put his new best friend Vagar to work in service of the conflict boiling over here. It will all collapse back into politics. Yeah, another touchstone I forgot to write into the notes is that this is also a bit like Odin, the Allfather from Norse mythology, yes, our second mention absolutely. of Norse mythology. Um, he gave up his eye and hung himself from a tree to gain the infinite knowledge that made him the Allfather. And you kind of see that's the price uh, Amon had to pay to become a god, to become a dragon rider. So our next scene is basically Otto and Alicent, where Otto gets to go to, up to his daughter and say, you're a monster, and I absolutely love this about you. <laughs> Alicent already knows the lecture that Ada would have prepared for her. She knows it was a mistake and not a good performance of her station and position and how it might possibly even weaken everything that they're trying to do. Otto's like, yeah, it was. It was pretty ugly, but this is an ugly game, and you seem like you are actually trying to play to win for the first time that I've seen, remembering he's been gone from court for a while. Otto also knows the king will forgive her, because that's who Viserys is, and it's not like he's going to get rid of her as queen, especially with three bonafide Targaryen children. And, you know, he says this line, the boy is right, it was worth a thousand times the cost, which uh, brings up the line, a thousand eyes and one, uh, which is yeah. a common reference to uh, Blood Raven that's used in the later books. Yeah, that's a great catch. I was comparing Amond to Euron earlier. And one theory I basically treat as canon at this point is that Euron <laughs> is a rogue protege of Blood Ravens because when Bran's mm -hmm, having his mm -hmm. flying dream, he has that great moment where he sees like the bones of all of the other dreamers scattered around the spikes. And you come back to that and reread and go, oh, Blood Raven, I know you're trying to save the world, but how many children have you murdered or ruined? <laughs> and it's a very similar imagery going on here. And yeah, this is this little scene between Otto and Alicent. It's this is actually probably my favorite scene in the episode. Just for I was just laughing out loud at how perverse it is that only now is Otto proud of his daughter. Like she's ashamed of herself. She thinks that she has just like single-handedly ruined their position. And as as I was saying about her and Rhaenyra, given how repressed she is, this conversation almost feels like it's about sex. Like, I gave way to my feelings, I gave way to my desires, and I did it in public, so now I'm experiencing shame. As Allison said, she has always done her duty, and this was the one exception. But even though Otto was the one always enforcing those rules on her, part of him didn't like how bloodless she became as a result. And that's kind of the great contradiction, right? That you, you repress your passions, you repress the things you care about in order to be a more effective politician. 
But what are you doing that for? What are politics even about except the things we care about? Beneath all of Otto's euphemisms and his his reverence for protocols and procedures, he knows what the opening credits show us. This all comes down to blood, and they're going to have to shed blood in order to win. Even more than that, I love Otto's newfound affection for Amond, especially coming after his disgust for finding Egon drunk in public. You, you imagine he's thinking, well, maybe we don't need the air. Maybe the spare is better. I love when he says that rogue Amond with like this obvious like grandfatherly fondness in his voice. Oh, that rogue. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Beneath all the individual emotions, the takeaway here is that the Greens just got a tremendous asset. Like, imagine if this hadn't happened. The war would have gone very differently. If Reyna had Vagar instead, probably would have been over quicker and in Rhaenyra's favor. For that power, Otto will happily trade his grandson's eye and humanity, and his daughter's humanity, and his own. Again, it's a contradiction. What Otto loves more than anything is the willingness to abandon love. Yeah, and Vagar is one of those wins that's both symbolic and substantive. Um, it's symbolic in the sense that it's one; of, it's the oldest dragon. It comes from the time of Aegon the Conqueror and has a great history to uh, her herself. And then also the fact that being the largest dragon, um, and theoretically, I think the largest dragons also have the hottest fires. So this is pretty much the most dangerous dragon to have out of all of them. One that can go toe-to-toe with uh, presumably the more experienced Caraxes that Damon has been flying around. So now we cut over to some gnarly stitching action. We get some great foley work as we watch uh, a maester sew up Rhaenyra's arm after the little spat. You even get a little bit of a squish in the foley work as a treat. Um, and the maester says it will scar, but the wounds will heal, which, you know, is a line that can pretty much refer to the Dance of Dragons as a whole. Um this whole conflict that's about to bubble up is going to leave its scars on the kingdom, but those do patch themselves up in time. This is where Lenor finally makes his return, having missed all the high drama. Rhaenyra has to dismiss the maester and the children so she can talk frankly to her husband. I should have been there. Yeah, that should have been our house words, too. <laughs> And uh, they have, a once again, a really nice chat where they are kindly to each other and obviously feel some sort of affection. And Lenor is a bit, you know, regretful about how he's failed in his duties. He even goes so far to say, I wish I was born differently. And Rhaenyra shuts him up on that. It's like, I don't. You're an honorable man with a good heart. It's a rare thing. And specifically, you've treated me well, whereas so many men wouldn't. Um, and it's a credit to the actors here for making this relationship work, given in this very limited screen time that they've had in the last couple episodes. Lenor wants to recommit to the marriage for all the time they've lost, but Rhaenyra has a different plan, which we'll talk about in episode's end. And he, he says the line, you deserve a husband, which, again, she agrees, but she has a different one in mind. This is the send-off for the Lenor and Rhaenyra relationship, and I've really enjoyed how they wrote their dynamic as this believably realistically difficult thing that is still shot through with genuine love. And that's part of why it's so difficult. Like, in some ways, this would be an easier conversation to have if they didn't care about each other at all. It would just be much more kind of instrumental and mercenary, and the, the stakes would be different and less personal. It's this horrible in-between position, as, as Lenor says, where he's like, I did love you and I did love our kids. It's just, it's just not enough. And that's, I think that's, that honesty is what maybe saves him, as we'll get towards the end of the episode. The fact that he was willing to admit that 
and say, no, I do have the love there. It's just not enough to make us happy. I think that's something Rhaenyra can understand and work with and build upon in terms of what they do next. The court leaves Driftmark, first by carriage and then by boat. We see Raynus and Corlys looking out their windows, lined with bars making it seem like a cage. They are caught in the Targaryen struggle, whether they want it or not. This is where uh, Rhaenyra starts giving a monologue that kind of stretches over the next set of scenes, starting with, fire is a prison, the sea offers an escape. And they talk about how fire made House Targaryen, but is also what killed Daemon and Rhaenyra's loves, so to speak. And this is one of those scenes where it's it's like a, a let's make the subtext text. It's that kind of conversation where the characters just say the themes out loud, which I'm usually kind of leery of. But I think it works when it fits character. And Damon and Rhaenyra are just pretentious enough that I do believe they would talk like this. And it's it's core to the story. It's right there in the title, A Song of Ice and Fire. And you have these literal elements that do come into play in kind of a literal magical level. But they're also metaphors for internal problems and the, the human heart divided against itself. That that fire and water in some ways stand in for humans wanting things they can never really have. Yeah, I always kind of like when this show or several shows kind of go Shakespearean in this way. Because this is a language you would find more by um, our good old friend Bill. And you can add a little flourish to it by having it spoken in High Valyrian. So even if the words aren't as great as William Shakespeare would write, the delivery and performance still comes through and really sells it coming out. On the royal barge, Laris offers to take an eye for Alicent if she demands it, which makes me think of Rocket Raccoon just having spare eyeballs on him to give to Thor or whenever. Um, he likes his body parts. But Alicent says, chill for now, but his service, his skill, and most of all his discretion will be needed soon. Cutting back to Rhaenyra, we get a I need you, uncle, again in the common tongue before switching to High Valyrian. Rhaenyra also, in High Valyrian, refers to the other faction as the Greens for the first time, which seems notable. She says we need to bind our blood like Aegon and his sisters. Let's get married. It shores up my claim and seems to hint that it could also bind the Valerians to their side as well. In, in a very telling comment, we were always meant to burn together. I think she was specifically referring to her and Daemon, but I think can be read as all the people around them as well. So this is all setting up the fake death of Lenor, which I hope I'm not spoiling that for you, but I assume you know that this all happens. We get Damon in his uh, Kermit the Frog hood talking to Carl, possibly at Spice Town or some or just nearby at Driftmark. Carl's a landless knight with the Lord's taste. So Damon offers him gold and safe passage east if he just does a thing for him. The show is asking us to assume the worst, uh, be it Unsullied or even us book readers. I think it's very clever the way that they're using the blank spaces they used previously in telling the story, especially about what Damon was capable of against the audience here. He mentions a quick death, death with witnesses, which might seem a little strange, but makes sense kind of coming back to it. And we get a cut to Damon uh, doing a CQC takedown on a random guard in Driftmark. CQC, which is a phrase I'll probably use a lot, stands for close quarter combat. Um, it's basically he comes up behind the guy and breaks his neck. Rhaenyra's monologue continues. I will not be a tyrant who rules with terror, which to which Damon responds, a tyrant only rules through terror. Yes, love and respect are dope. My words, not his, but your subjects must fear you. And then she says, I love Sor Laenor. And then he says, grant him this kindness, set him free, which again has the audience probably thinking of killing him as opposed to what actually happens. 
She says the realm will whisper I am somehow responsible, and her enemies will finally have a reason to fear of what she's capable of. Wisely, instead of the show revealing the old switcheroo right now, we get the Valyrian wedding. They let us linger on their marriage following what we assume to be a murder so that we are having a difficult time processing all that we see, especially a ceremony that invokes a lot of blood. They invoke Sumai, which is a little joke for your season two Game of Thrones fans, (laughs) where they slice open their palms with dragon glass and they also put a cut on their lower lip. They put blood on their forehead like Hindus do, which we call uh, tilak. And often in Hinduism, this mark is used as just an honor or an act of respect, but we sometimes mark our idols the same way. But putting it on our head also ties it to our chakras, and the word drushti comes to mind, which is the Hindi word for vision. Placing it squarely on the forehead invokes a third eye, coming back to some of that urine and bran and blood raven imagery. And finally, we get the last scene, dialogueless, of two men in cloaks taking a boat out. We see Carl right away, but the second man removes his hood, revealing Lenor is alive and well with the shaved head, with the, which is a pretty big twist for us book readers. It's a setup for Lenor as someone the series can return to if they ever want. If they even want to do some character economization, he can play some of the role that Adam of Hull or Alan, uh, the grand bastards of the sea snake do in the story this is also a way for us to put eyes on the sepstones with the rise of oh shit i already burned off my rocket raccoon joke earlier in this episode but whatever that guy is named Ricalio radun right um, not illyrio and not dario this is a great little um thing that they've kind of guarded into where Lanar can be used as little or as much as they want to uh, in the future of the show. That's a great comparison to Hindu rites. That's that's fascinating. I think that that adds layers to the, the kind of ritualistic feel of the Valyrian wedding that's being uh, kind of cross-cut with this ending here. And I have seen some very mixed reactions to this ending with Lanor surviving, but I think it works well. It's one of those twists that will hold up on rewatch because it doesn't break any rule that plays fair with you. Like, you can go back and watch the scene with Rhaenyra and Damon. You can go back and watch the scene with Damon and Carl. And there's nothing they say that violates continuity. Nothing they say that makes this not make sense. It reminds me of, of rewatching The Sixth Sense and realizing just the genius job they did there where after Bruce Willis gets shot, he does not directly interact with anyone except Haley Joel Osment. But that's never made too obvious. Like, you'll open on a scene where he's sitting in a chair next to Haley Joel Osment's mom in a chair. And it's like you just your brain just assumes, oh, they've been talking probably about the kid. And then the mom gets up and leaves the room and Haley Joel Osment comes in and going back, you're like, oh, he's a ghost and she doesn't even know he's there. But there's nothing that violates that. And same thing on a much more compressed scale with what's going on at the end of this episode. The one dangling thread here is Sea Smoke is Lanor's dragon. We'll see how they deal with that later on. As you say, having him play the Adam role would work. They could also just shrug and give Sea Smoke a new rider and just ask us to accept that. And I'm fine with that. Like George himself, I'm not married to like rules of magic. I think that that fits like video games and tabletop games when it actually matters what the rules are. But for storytelling, I'm like, you should, magic should be occult and weird and make no sense. And that part, that's just so you can have a nice sandbox to play with. So I'll be fine even if they hand wave that. I think it's, some people have said this is just kind of, it's too easy, like it's a have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too situation for Rhaenyra, where she gets her new marriage but doesn't have to actually do anything bad. And I think that does ignore the fact that they just killed a random guy <laughs> who now doesn't even get the dignity of having his own death, but he's replaced for someone else. It reminds me of 
a couple things in the main series of Theon killing the Miller's boys to stand in for Bran and Rickon, but also that great bit in Dance when Davos goes to White Harbor and Wyman Manderley publicly orders him executed, but then comes to him in private later and said, I was just doing that to show off for the phrase. We're actually going to be friends. I killed some other random guy and put his head on the walls. And Davos is like, who? Who did you kill? <laughs> and Wyman Manderley is honestly puzzled that he's asking that question. He's like, some guy, some random criminal. What do you care? And it's, there's that there's that ethical tension where it's like, oh, good. I'm glad they made it out alive. But there was a, a serious price to pay for it. Same kind of dynamic applies here. Above all, though... I think this ending works as an object lesson in something we've been talking about, the performance of power. It's a shadow on a wall, as Varys says. What matters is what people believe. If people think Rhaenyra and Daemon might have had Laenor killed, as Rhaenyra and Daemon say, they will be feared for it. And that's what matters to them in this moment. So in that context, who cares if Laenor is actually dead or not? There's no reason to kill him, just as long as people think we might have killed him. It's like Renly's armor in reverse. Where in Clash of Kings, it didn't matter that Renly was dead. What matters is we can make people believe he's alive, if only for a moment. And I I do think Damon is right. Maybe this will get me in trouble. I do think Damon is right <laughs> that some fear is required to stay in charge, especially in a society where violent power is all caught up in the individual image of the king. You can see that even in small things, in gestures, like when Viserys confronted Damon about the whole heir for a day thing. There's a reason Viserys had his sword out in that moment. It wasn't just to, like, lean on like a crutch. It was it was to show off, hey, I'm willing to kill you, and I'm the guy who gets to kill you. That's my job. It's, you know, Ned expresses a, a kind of a gentler version of that to Bran at the start of the main story. The problem is that it's very hard to maintain that balance between fear and love and respect and all the things you got to have as a leader. Like, what are you going to do to get people to be afraid of you? What happens when you can't just fake it anymore? Along that path, Stannis found out he had basically no limits. And the same is going to be true of Daemon and Rhaenyra. Their marriage, like their wedding, is going to be marked by blood. Yeah, that uh, last thing I want to add is just, um, like we mentioned, how they left a lot of blank spaces in the narrative so we could assume the worst about Damon, and that allowed us to play on our what we expected in terms of what was going to happen with Carl. This, um, in a very in-narrative uh, or in-universe way, um, Damon never denies the bad things he's accused of. He never specifically says, no, I didn't say air for the day. And he, when uh, Viserys confronts him about what happened in the Pleasure House, he doesn't flat out say, no, we didn't have sex at that. He he lets people believe the worst about him. So when these kind of stories start making their rounds, people will believe it because Damon has specifically not, uh, not denied these rumors, even when we know them as the objective viewer as not having happened or probably not having happened. That's why he says to uh, Rhaenyra, like, uh, what depravity you're talking about. You're really going to have to narrow that down. <laughs> I've been accused of many things. And the thing is with Damon, especially as it gets older, I bet he's starting to lose track of what he's actually done and what's just a story. He might be like, honestly, honestly, don't remember <laughs> what I did and what I just told people I did. In the same way that Viserys is starting to confuse his wives. It's just like, it's all... It's all just this fiction. I'm just keeping up. Like, I have to be that guy. Or who am I? And Allison is dealing with her version of that. And the kids are starting to realize, oh, that's going to be my life. Where I just have this person. I have to just pretend to be in front of everybody. That seems like hell. And they're all, they're all just... And that's the great irony of, the, of them being extremely powerful people. Because in these moments, they don't feel very powerful at all. And that's, that's a dynamic I love. And I think that's part of what keeps us coming back to this particular universe. 
So that is going to wrap us up for Driftmark Season 1, Episode 7 of House of the Dragon. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can follow us at notacastasoiaf on Twitter. And you can follow me at PoorQuentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find my coverage of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. Which is excellent stuff, by the way. You two are, are, are doing a great job of, of soldiering through and finding interesting things to talk about in a show where I like many aspects, but I find myself increasingly scratching my head as to what the point actually is <laughs> but you, you guys have, have been keeping it really diverse and talking about it from a lot of different angles and i think that's it's that's my it's been my favorite rings of power content so far has been you too just because uh you come with such love of the material and emily knows just a, a, a such a terrific well of knowledge to talk from about the subject so that's that's just been great um for my own part i have my next lord of the rings episode coming up uh, later this week on chapter on book five, chapter eight, Houses of the Healing. That's going to be available for all our $5 and above patrons over on patreon.com slash notacast ASOIAF, where you can also find my first episode on Star Wars episode three, Revenge of the Sith, for $5 and above patrons. I'll be doing my next episode on that in a couple weeks. And then we are going to be back next week into A Song of Ice and Fire with A Storm of Swords Tyrion 4. That'll be up for folks. That'll be up for uh, patrons starting on Thursday the 13th, and then we'll be up for general release on Monday the 17th. And, of course, we will be right back here next week for the next episode of House of the Dragon. So thank you so much again for listening, everyone, and we will see you next week for more House of the Dragon.